good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Saumya Parthasarathy, and I'm an architect and urban designer. I work uh, in Arab's Integrated City Planning Group. I was born and raised in India. I studied architecture in India, and, my, and I cut my teeth as an architect in India, and then uh, uh, left. I went to the States to study further. I lived there for a number of years, and I've been in London for the last 10 years. So I've been all over the place, but my roots are from India. I grew up in Delhi. My parents are from Chennai, so I know North and South pretty well. Which are the... Uh, oh, yes. So... Nick asked me to maybe speak a little bit about this new phenomenon called smart cities in India. Um, and as my title alludes, I think uh, you can't talk about smart cities. It's just too wide a topic. You have to pick an angle. So I'm going to talk about the importance of being smart about water in cities. Uh, so for those of you who've heard of it uh, or not heard of it, uh, just a, a quick introduction. Uh, in 2015, India launched something called a Smart Cities Mission. Uh, and it was one of the cornerstones of uh, the new Prime Minister's urban policy. It was a new focus in urban India. As uh, Sunan said earlier, the old utopian Gandhian model was, was rural India. There was really uh, not much thought or respect given to, uh, to city dwellers. But for the first time in the last two years, I think it's begun to be recognized that cities are important. There are a lot of people moving into cities and that the country better have some kind of a policy and some kind of initiatives and funding and, uh, and, uh, and, and ways to make cities better. Also, the middle class in the cities are really growing and hopefully we'll get to this in the, when we talk about community engagement. Uh, a constituency for having better urban quality of life is growing. Um, and, and I think that will trigger some improvements, which we'll talk about a bit later. And I think uh, the book that you read, uh, uh, Nick, Transforming Our Cities, is really, in a way, based on, uh, on, on the pressure from, from communities themselves. 100 cities um, were supposed to be selected to be smart. About 98 have been selected based on a competition. All cities were supposed to prepare a proposal for being selected as smart cities. They were expected to, uh, to come up with an area-based proposal, so a piece of land and what they might do with it, and one initiative that was pan-city. It could be about transport, it could be something policy-related, it could be about air quality, so one each. Um, and so what did they come up with? What is an Indian smart city? In the last two or three years, people have been discussing that to that. Is it just about technology, as we understand it? Is it just about good planning? Uh, is it about making Indian cities competitive globally and getting economic uh, development in it, or is it about social justice? Um, the first 20 cities, I'll come to that in a minute, the first 20 cities are, are those, and UKTI did a very interesting report on analyzing what these 20 cities are doing with their smart cities proposal. And as, as you can see, the, the last column says tier, it's tier one, two, or three, and the Indian cities are tiered according to their population. So tier one is the biggest, and tier two are, you know, I think anything over half a million, and tier three are the smaller ones. Uh, only two tier one cities, a lot of tier two cities, a couple of tier three cities, and some of the future, um, the, the others on the list are, are considerably smaller cities. So it's, it's, it's a full spectrum of cities that are being selected for, for this program. So what, are the, what do the cities really want? And, and I just picked this up from, uh, from the UKTI report. Uh, 
uh, 35% of their proposals that they want as part of their smart cities are built environment related. And if you dig down into that, it's about housing, it's green building, and it's waterfront development. A lot of these cities are on rivers or are coastal, and some of their waterfront developments are just making you know, fancy developments along the water, but some of them are about flooding and about dealing with informal settlements that are uh, along waterfronts. Transport is a, is a, is a big uh, category of, uh, of uh, investment. Water and wastewater is a big one. Interestingly, technolo pure technology, which is about e-governance and things like that, which you normally think, it's just 7% of the total. So it's very clear that smart cities in India is really a funnel or a lens to begin to think about how to approach cities. And I think that's the way we need to look at it. Uh, where's the money for this? Uh, the first 20 cities have proposed uh, uh, programs that will cost approximately 5,000 million pounds of which two-fifths come from government grants, and the rest are uh, from PPP models and debt and, and so on and so forth. Uh, the, the following four points I've put in, because there are other missions in India that have sort of an equal level of importance and are able to get some funding. And the more we can, those of us who work in India, can start making links between these missions, we sort of ride the political wave of... Uh, of what can be implemented. So the Swachh Bharat mission is the Clean India mission. It's about sanitation and building of toilets. The, there's an Atal mission for rejuvenation and transformation called Amrit, and that's like a smart cities mission, but it's for the 500 cities that don't make it to the top 100, and they are smaller cities, and the focus of that mission and funding will be on urban services, so better garbage, better water supply, better energy, and so on, rather than any big capital-intensive things. Uh, the National Water Mission, particularly the Clean Ganga Mission, is a very important uh, mission in, in India. There's an interesting statistic which says that 75% of pollutants in Indian rivers and lakes is munis municipal sewage, not industrial. Um, and the last point there is an interesting <laughs> one. In 2013, the Companies Act made it mandatory for all companies above a certain turnover to spend 2% of their annual profits on, CS, on, uh, on corporate social responsibility. And if you add all that up, if you look at all the companies in India that qualify, and it's an annual potential spend of about 8 billion US dollars. And many, many companies obviously are already spending money on CSR, so it's not new money that comes into the picture. But that is the scale of sort of private sector, corporate social responsibility type money that can be sent. There are certain sectors in which they can spend it. They're supposed to report back on it. And many of what issues we consider good planning actually do fall in that. So, you know, here's, here's where some money is for beginning to do uh, a few things in, in Indian cities. So just uh, uh, quickly on the water crisis in India. You know, we talk about water and, uh, and, and many of us don't realize just what an incredible impact it has on quality of life in cities. A few interesting things here. Not a single Indian city has 24-hour piped water supply. And the average for Indian cities, I grew up in a household where we stored water in buckets every morning, two hours a day. It's still the case. Uh, only 30% of households connected to wastewater uh, groundwater depletion in India is huge, and only part of this is due to agriculture. The rest happens in cities, because as I'll come to it in a minute, uh, allocation of land where you grow is, is, is a complete mess. India does not practice risk-based land use planning in any way, and so it, it's in cities where the groundwater is depleting even faster 
than, uh, than out in the rural areas. Millions, I mean, hundreds of millions of people affected by drought on the one hand and flooding on the other. Um, and here are some recent catastrophes which some of us may have seen. I mean, the Chennai floods of 2016 or, or was it 2015? 2016 was huge. Uh, by many people's account, somewhat preventable. $3 billion in, in damage within two weeks. Um, the two other uh, pictures on the top are from Bangalore recently. The, Bangalore, the city of lakes and city of gardens traditionally. Two of those lakes in recent time, one of them had fish kills regularly. You can see that. And the other one caught fire because of toxic foam on it. I mean, these are lakes in the middle of India's, one of India's richest cities. It's uh, shameful. Uh, and, and several other floods in many other cities which could have been preventable. My own city where I grew up, Yamuna, uh, Delhi, the river Yamuna is still the main source of portable water, uh, uh, which is treated, of course, uh, in the city. And it's considered by most people to be dead. It is so polluted. Um, so Arab did a, a little report for, for DEFRA recently about water security in India, and they picked the top 10 issues which... Uh, which are important water issues, and, and these are the top ones. And I've just highlighted a few because they have incredible uh, impact on, on urban quality as well. So I'll just skim over this slide. It's just to show that there's been some work going on from the Foreign and Commonwealth Office and Prosperity Fund-related work to try and identify issues around water in India. And I think uh, those of us who work in the UK should keep an eye out on that because there may be some sources of funding uh, if if we can uh, figure out the right projects. So just very quickly, Chennai, in 1980, to the left, and 19 and, and now, it's to 2010, but you can say now to the right, that's the corporation of Chennai boundary, and that's the kind of urbanization that is taking place. Uh, in 1980, 80% of Chennai's corporation was some designated wetland or the other. It's 15% now. And that one, if, if you could see, there's a, there's a little color that comes up. That was the extent of that was the extent of the area that flooded. And one of Chennai's most important uh, sort of projects at the moment is the IT corridor that's being built roughly from here to here. And as this and this transect here is where you know Chennai had these big lakes, and you can see the marshland which is slowly eroding. The water, they would link to each other and flow into the sea. There's this big, you know, we talk about transport corridors and maybe they're important areas for urbanization. Actually, sometimes the big transport corridors are designed in the absolutely wrong place. Uh, not that you can do much about that, but um, there you go. And, and that's what happened recently. Floods, not just in the IT corridor, but obviously having a huge impact on more informal settlements who also live along the coast. Bangalore, in, in, this was quite a while ago, 1885, was a city of lakes. Actually, it was man-made tanks that were built at different levels, and they were all connected. So some of the, the tanks or the lakes would be all, full all the time, and the others would fill up during monsoon. Most of them have disappeared. You can see there's hardly any left in 2014. Uh, and I just want to, so going back, we're, we're actually doing a little project which I'll briefly tell you about in Osur Lake, which is there. There's another huge lake here, which is sort of connected, called Belandur Lake. It's off this map, but that's what it is. And I just want to bring you, the, there's an airport right to the north of it. Just look at that yellow circle, which I'm going to zoom into. That was in 2004. It was fairly agricultural. People still 
recognize that you shouldn't build on some of these tributaries that fill the lake during rainy season. That's what it is now, in, in 10 or 12 years. And so that, over there, is, an, is this big IT park. That's what these typologies look like, very nice. Barely two kilometers away, that's the lake that caught fire because it, it's silted, it's uh, unclean, you know, it, it, there's no water flows left. Um, what, do you, what, what can we do about such things? Um, I just want to end with showing a small project that we were asked to do for a private developer in Ulsur Lake, which is one of the lakes which, which still exists. It was built uh, in the 16th century by uh, the royal family. It had this kind of beautiful landscape, and it was part of that whole system of water catchments that the city was famous for. And it's actually still quite nice now, despite the f occasional fish kills. It, it's still full. Um, and uh, uh, the developer called Prestige Developers, who works nationally, are headquartered in Bangalore, and they are in one of those high-rise buildings you see. And they wanted to use their corporate social responsibility funds to, to make the lake a better place. It's very hard to actually get to the lake. Um, and they thought maybe it's a good idea. You know, they'll improve public access. It'll also help uh, generate value for the land holdings they have. But when we looked at it, we realized that there was no way you could get public access in it till you had a strategy for cleaning the lake, essentially. And they said, oh, that's fine. We, can, uh, we will invest in water treatment plants. But if you actually followed what was happening to the lake, a water treatment plant wouldn't have done anything. So we went back and we saw some of the tributaries in these little nalas or canals that actually feed into the lake. And that's where the problem really started, because there's a lot of informal settlements along those nalas up to the north that dump their sewage and so on into, into those nalas. Uh, they don't have a choice because they are informal and therefore they can't actually connect to the sewer. Um, and when we recognized that, and we, we did some studies and we figured out if you could solve that problem, essentially 50 to 60% of the pollutants in the lake would disappear. And then you could begin to treat a little bit. And we came up with this whole strategy of maybe bringing the lake back to sort of portable quality over time. And the developer was very happy to use their, uh, uh, they had a, sort of a community liaison officer who didn't do very much in their, in their staff. And now he says, I'm going to do this. So they go to the community and they're working with them, developing septic tanks and other things. So over a few years, I mean, maybe three or four years, they feel they can actually begin to really reduce pollution into these nalas. So I think um, we've a little bit transformed the brief for them and they bought into it. And then we said, once you're able to start that process, you begin to reactivate it, figure out you know, where people can come and what the landscape design around the lake could be like. Um, lobby for some better transport and public transport connections so people can actually come to the lake and, uh, and think of uh, engagement and governance because it's not just a project. And so, you know, that's what the, the lake could look like. It could be a hugely beneficial, a high-quality place in cities uh, like Bangalore. And there are hundreds of lakes in Bangalore and Chennai and many other places which could benefit from some kind of thinking along this nature, a place to go at nights, uh, a growing middle class, but also a growing a poor population that has access to uh, an amenity. I mean, India is notoriously poor in green space per person. Uh, London, for example, has something like 50 times more green uh, space per person than Mumbai, for example, and, and many other cities are similar. I just put this, it's not to read, just zooming in. One of the uh, products that we did as part of that Ulsur Lake project was an implementation timeline where we said, you know, do a Friends of the Lake, do this, do that, which was more important than some of those pretty pictures because this is what now 
they have up on the wall and they say, okay, it's time to do this and it's time to monitor the water quality or whatever. So just want to end with some lessons. Obviously, there are some technical lessons on mapping stuff and doing better land use and so on. But the one thing I would like to say is, I think if we just took a bird's eye view of these problems in India and say, I wish you know, the policy would change or we'd get all this money, I think we could be waiting forever. I think it's really important we work on small inspirational projects and look at them in sort of, you know, sort of build connections to, to bigger things and try to make them replicable so they can be used or, or a little bit inspirational. So I think there's a lot of power in a small project that begins to change culture and thinking rather than just think, oh, you know, the policy has to change. So that's all. I'll leave you with that. Thank you very much.